All right. Good morning, Providence. Again, I guess I already said good morning to you. I'll say it twice. Today we're going to be in Ephesians chapter 3, as was already shared, and uh, as Maywish read for us, we're going to tackle the first half of Ephesians chapter 3, and I'm going to warn you ahead of time, it is a lengthy text, and so we're going to move through it fairly quickly. Um, And so we're not going to do, I mean, you could do a deep dive on a few of the concepts that are in this chapter, or in this portion of this chapter, but we're going to move fairly quickly. Paul is going to articulate throughout Ephesians a philosophy. In fact, the New Testament is going to articulate a philosophy. And they're going to anchor this philosophy in ancient times, in the ancient word of God, uh, as revealed in what we refer to as the Old Testament, and heavily influenced and brought to fullness by the arrival, crucifixion, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Paul's going to articulate how this this, uh, event, these events, affected the world. Not just a localized portion of the world, like many philosophies do, but the entire world has been impacted and affected by this. Philosophy is an interesting word, made up of two words, philo and sophia. Philo meaning love, sophia meaning wisdom. So philosophy is supposed to be a love of wisdom, a pursuit of wisdom that is born by, motivated by a love for wisdom. So that's what Paul is going to be articulating. He's he's already started. He's making his case for this in chapters one and two, and he's going to move deeper and deeper into it. He's going to tease out in chapters four and five the implications. If you bring your life into alignment with this philosophy, But he's also going to warn us elsewhere, like in Colossians. He's going to say, you need to take care that you are not led captive by philosophy. He says this in Colossians chapter 2, verse 8. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. So for Paul, this topic of philosophy is vitally important, and he sees us all at risk of being taken captive and led astray by lesser philosophies. Now, we could talk a long time. I'm not a, I'm not a philosopher. <laughs> I, I would probably get a C in a, in a class on philosophy right now. But I am interested by it and in it. And on Thursday mornings, we have started talking about specifically postmodern philosophy in a small group at Juan's house. And I'm going to just share some things that we've gotten from that briefly as an introduction to this. Our current generation has been heavily influenced by a philosophy, the philosophy of the Enlightenment vision, also known as modernism. And to really understand this, it would be helpful to do a deep dive into pre-modernism, but we're not going to do that. We don't have time to do that this morning, and this is just kind of the wave tops of a a two-and-a-half-hour video that we watched in this group by probably the driest teacher, professor that I've sat through, but it was, he made it fascinating. He was dry, but he made it fascinating. If you want to watch that video, we can share the link with you. But our generation is heavily influenced by modernism and even more so my parents' generation and their parents' generation. Modernism is just a philosophy and it's a philosophy that is rooted in our capacity for reason. Modernism says you can find the truth 
by reason. You can, you can find the explanation for how the universe came to be, how it works, how it functions, where it's headed, how we as civilizations uh, live and flourish. You can find all of these answers through reason. And if you pursue this, you're led quickly into individualism and science. So you as a person have the facility to reason. You can reason on your own and you can find the truth on your own as an individual and specifically as you apply yourself to the sciences. You can find meaning and explanation and objective reality, the explanation of objective reality. As you pursue these things, you get into politics and economics, which is liberalism and capitalism. Your individualism will move you into uh, liberalism when it comes to politics, which is not like liberal versus conservative. Liberal as in liberty. You are free. You're not under the tyranny of a king. You can be, as an individual, you can be self-governed. In fact, self-government came to be during this early season of uh, modernism in the 1700s. You saw revolutions happening around these ideas in France and in England and in the United States. This, as liberalism started taking hold and taking root, Capitalism is the way you govern your economy. Oh, I don't know why we just lost it. If I can't get it back, I'll just explain it. There we go. I think I pulled, it. I pulled the plug. Okay, capitalism. If you are given to reason and you're individual in your thinking, this affects the way you handle money and think about money. And you, as a free-thinking person, should be free to make as much money as you want. You shouldn't be uh, tied to the feudal system. You should actually be free to go explore and start a business and make money. And there is no end to the amount of money that you can make and that a society can produce uh, through capitalism. In science, as you continue down this road, this led to massive leaps in engineering. The Industrial Revolution happened as a result of this philosophy. Medicine, major leaps forward in medicine. Uh, as this philosophy continued to roll out and have impacts in all of these areas. These things will lead to freedom as a nation. You are free from England, specifically, and you're free from tyranny. You can govern yourselves. It will lead to wealth. That's the promise of the Enlightenment vision. Wealth for everybody. Everybody, if they apply themselves to this philosophy uh, and serve this philosophy, everybody's going to get rich. This leads to material goods. You can have as many of the things and the food, as much food as you want. This will provide your needs and health. You'll live longer according to this philosophy. So the end promise is unending progress and the pursuit for everyone of happiness. All men, after all, are created equal, right? Life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. This is a philosophy. This is the Enlightenment vision. This is modernism. And this held sway all the way through the mid-1900s. And so your parents, your grandparents, even some of you, even myself, we find ourselves resonating with certain ideas here. It needs to be stated, this is not Christian. This is not fundamentally Christian. This is what America was founded on. It was founded on modernism, but not Christianity. Our founding fathers were not Christians. They were modernists. They didn't believe in the deity of Christ. Thomas Jefferson actually famously cut portions of the Bible out that he didn't like. He said, Revelation is the ravings of a lunatic. Our founding fathers were not Christians. 
and this philosophy is not Christian. How has this philosophy played out? Has it delivered on its promise? The promise of progress and happiness for everyone. No, no, no. If I asked you that question 50 years ago, though, or maybe 75 years ago, you would say, yeah, it's going great. This would be a room filled with mostly white people. And you'd look around at your manicured lawns and your neighborhoods, and you would say, yes, I've got a pension. Things are going great. This has delivered. But now, now we are seeing the shortcomings of this philosophy. And we're actually right in the middle of two competing philosophies, modernism and what's, the, what's this one that we're in now? Postmodernism, yes. Postmodernism came in and said of this vision, actually, we need, to, we need to make one point. This promise is a promise that you can have the kingdom without the king. Okay? You can have the benefits that God offers people, happiness, blessing. You can have all those things without the king. That's what it's, it's built on that idea. Postmodernism came along and said, actually, all of this is a fraud. This entire thing is a fraud. None of it is true. None of it has worked out the way they promised that it would. It's fraudulent. The first thing they crossed out is this idea that liberalism will lead to freedom for everyone. It hasn't led to freedom for everyone. It has led to freedom for a select few or a majority. But it hasn't led to freedom for minorities or marginalized classes, immigrants. It hasn't led to freedom for them. It's left us bankrupt and has led to racism, sexism, xenophobia, homophobia, and many, many other things. Postmodernism has failed in economics. Capitalism has not led to wealth for everyone. It has led to wealth for 1% of everyone. It has led to some very rich people getting richer and very poor people getting poorer. It has led to corporate greed and it has left us empty and wanting more and angry. Engineering and medicine did not deliver all of the happiness that they promised. Instead, they delivered engineering, delivered nuclear weapons and weapons of mass destruction. More people were killed in war in the, 19th, in the 20th century than all of the other wars combined. This engineering, this endless pursuit of engineering gave us weapons that allowed us to annihilate people at a rate we had never seen before. And pollution, all of your things that this promise is giving you are being thrown away or polluting the earth. It hasn't led to happiness. Medicine has worked out for the West, but it's also led to corruption and big pharma and the opioid pan er, epidemic and uh, developing nations have not been given access, postmodernists would say, to the medicine of the West. So it doesn't provide happiness and health and wealth for everyone. Then they go deeper into the core of modernism and say, individualism is a lie. You are not just an individual or even primarily an individual. You are a member of a group. And all of your thinking and beliefs are heavily influenced by that group. Science is good, but it's not the only way to approach reality. It's not the only way to approach things and our existence. Science works if you're a white Western male, but if you're not, if you're in a different part of the world, you may not lean on the scientific method. 
This has led to imperialism and colonialism as we have tried to exert our scientific method and our love for the sciences on other places and in other cultures. And then reason itself is a fraud. Reason itself doesn't work. You do not have the ability to reason outside of the group that you're a part of, that you're a member of. You don't have the ability to reason because there is no objective, true meta-narrative. There is no story of how the world came to be, how the world truly functions, and where the world is going. There are sub-narratives, heavily influenced by your own culture, your own upbringing, your own group, maybe your own religion. So this leads to relativism and cynicism. We should take a cynical look at everything that postmodern or that modernism promised us, all of the institutions, authority in general, and we should start deconstructing everything. If we will do this, oh, by the way, the promise of modernists is a lie too. It led to injustice, oppression, and corruption. It did not lead to happiness for everybody. Now, here's where the postmodernists would tell you to focus your attention. First of all, lean into community. Lean into your group identity. Pursue social justice. Pursue economic equality. Pursue environmentalism and holistic healing. And if you will pursue these things, Postmodernism promises to deliver for you compassion, a world, a world of compassion, empathy, love, and equality. This, too, is a promise that you can have the kingdom without the king. You can have all of these things that you want, social justice. Who's satisfied with the level of justice in America? Virtually nobody, whether you're on the left or the right. You can have it. You just don't need the king because the king doesn't exist. All you really need is love and empathy for others. How is this playing out today? Have you received the, or yeah, has it been delivered for you? Compassion, love, are you feeling loved by postmodernism? Are you? No, it works as long as you are in the group. But if you're an outsider, it does not work for you. There isn't, there's cancellation for you if you're an outsider. It doesn't have true worldwide compassion and empathy at its core. It has compassion and empathy for those who are like-minded. It can't deliver on these promises without a king. And it can't give you a king if there is no objective reality or a meta-narrative to all of this. These are the two philosophies that are competing for your soul today in this country. There are others, there are other philosophies at play and at work, but these are the two leading philosophies and they are clashing. And this clash has resulted in polarization. So now even conservatives, even though they don't sound like postmodernists when they speak and advocate, they are postmodernists. Largely, they are heavily influenced by postmodernism because they can have alternative facts. They can. There is no objective reality. And the group is most important. So if, if you look at this uh, at, at postmodernism, the savior in this model is actually your community and the narrative that your community is telling you. So if your community is not in power, you are out of hope and your savior has lost. So the most important thing you can do is get your savior in power. But conservatives, modernists, believe the same thing. They believe it's all on your own individual reason. 
And if you don't have the power and the freedom to reason and think and do as you please, if you're pushed out of power, you lose and there's no one coming for you. And so it is power at all costs for both sides, both sides. Both sides want to actually be the king themselves. So that's, the con- that's our context. And again, it's about a C. You can, you can find somebody that can give that to you in an A and do a really much better job, but that's an overview. Paul was writing in a context as well where philosophies were flying all over the place. And he was saying, be careful because they're compelling and they can lead you captive. And these things, the American dream of modernism is a compelling vision and it has led millions of Christians captive. The social justice that we rightly crave as Christians without Christ is empty and will never be accomplished and has led people astray and captive. So how do we not be led astray? I want to talk about this superior wisdom that Paul talks about in this chapter. First, we're going to really zero in on and focus on what I think is the core of this exposition that Paul is making here. It's verse 10. So that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Paul is saying this wisdom is superior to all of these other wisdoms. In fact, all of these other philosophies are a lie and are built on a lie at the very beginning because they're claiming to be a love for wisdom, but they have rejected wisdom himself. And if you reject wisdom himself, you do not love wisdom. You have the philosophies and vain deceits of mankind, which has been common for the world's history. Okay, so first, the first reason we should prize and pursue this wisdom from God is that the wisdom of God has outlasted any rival philosophies. Modernism is about 300 years old. Postmodernism, 50 to 70 years old. This wisdom from God that Paul is talking about is anchored all the way in the history of Israel. This is an old and ancient wisdom, but it is much older than that. Paul says in verse 9, it has been hidden for all of the ages in God. All of the ages in God. Verse 5, it has not been made known for generations. Verse 11, it is rooted in eternity. This wisdom from God starts with God and ends with God, who has no beginning or end. This is eternal. And all of these inferior wisdoms through the centuries have crashed on this rock of wisdom and dissipated. And the new one has come in behind it and crashed and dissipated and crashed and dissipated. And sure, we can see now that modernism is not delivering on its promise. And there will be a generation that will say, even if they're not saying it now, postmodernism did not deliver on its promise. And the next philosophy will come and try to sweep people away and crash on the rock of God's wisdom, God's eternal wisdom. Second, the wisdom of God is deeper. It's not just that it has outlasted. It is deeper than rival philosophies. Paul talks in verse 5 that this was mysterious to previous generations. And in verse 10, he says this outworking, the implications of this wisdom will teach the spiritual authorities a lesson about who God is. First Peter, in First Peter, Peter says this too. Peter says, even angels themselves have applied themselves to understanding this wisdom. Paul is speaking to these Ephesian believers who are very well acquainted with a belief in the supernatural. 
We've talked about this. They had, in their past, they had multiple gods that they would pray to when they needed things. If they needed to get out of a jam or they needed a harvest, they would pray to all these different gods. And Paul is saying, those beings exist. I'm not here to tell you that they don't. They exist. And they long to understand what God is doing in Christ. They long to understand it, and they can't. It's too deep for them. Paul calls this the unsearchable riches of Christ in verse 8. To me, though I'm the very least of all saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. This wisdom requires the revelation of God himself in order for it to be known and understood. Verse 3, it says, How the mystery was made known to me by revelation. Paul used to fight against this particular form of wisdom, this philosophy, remember? He used to actually kill, torture and kill Christians because of the implications of this belief. And the belief here specifically is two ethnicities becoming one people in the church through the blood of Christ, Jews and Gentiles. And Paul was devoted to saying, no, the promises that God made to his covenant people, Israel, are not available to Gentiles, and I will kill those who say they are. That's what he was devoting his life to. And then the revelation of God happened to him. Remember that? When God blinded him and knocked him off his horse, and Jesus himself said, Paul, you're not just persecuting my followers, you are persecuting me. And Paul's life was changed. By revelation, as he started, just started to dip his toe into this vast ocean of the wisdom of God. It's not just made known by revelation, but it is also revealed by the Spirit in verse 5, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, this wisdom, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This wisdom requires the intervention of God for us to understand it and to receive it, and to then be compelled to live under it. So the wisdom of God has outlasted rival philosophies. It's deeper than rival philosophies, and it is broader than rival philosophies. It is not limited to a time and place. Modernists, or modernism was founded by wealthy Western white men. It was. That's who founded modernism. Postmodernism was founded by wealthy Western white men. It was primarily some French philosophers and an American philosopher. Four men are considered the fathers of postmodernism. In both cases, their philosophies worked in a specific time and in a specific context. But how would the Enlightenment fare in ancient Egypt? Pharaoh, all men are created equal. How would it, how would it work out? It would not play well at that time and in that place. How is postmodernism working out right now in Russia or in Cambodia or even in China? How is it, how is it playing out? It's not. Or even the USA. It's not. It's gaining more of a foothold here, but it's limited in its breadth. It's limited. These philosophies are regional, meaning they make some sense in certain parts of the world, in certain political structures, and they are temporal, meaning they have a shelf life. A thousand years from now, there will be a different philosophy than postmodernism or modernism. There just will be. The wisdom of God has no shelf life, at least according to Paul. 
This wisdom that an all-powerful God is calling out a people for himself from all the nations of the earth was at work in ancient Egypt as God literally called his people out of slavery. And it's working right now in Russia and Ukraine and China and Vietnam as the same God continues to call out for himself a people, a family, sons and daughters, and brings them into one family from all of those different groups, one family, the church. The implications of this wisdom are broader. They reach farther than postmodernism or modernism could ever have dreamt. The implications of this wisdom then even reach into the spiritual realm, which is what Paul is saying here and what Peter would say in his letter and what Paul says elsewhere. And even in Ephesians chapter four, he says, we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the princes and powers of this world, of this age. The spiritual authorities behind the empty philosophies. A philosophy is just a, a train of thought. It's not a thing. It's not an entity. But Paul would make the case that all philosophies, standing behind every philosophy, are supernatural powers who do want to divide you and lead you captive and ultimately destroy you. And Paul is saying the spiritual authorities behind the empty philosophies of the earth are stunned by the manifold wisdom of God in verse 10, which was realized in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now, what does that mean when Paul says this wisdom was realized in Christ Jesus our Lord? He is referring there specifically to the crucifixion of Christ. The crucifixion of Christ. In that moment, as the Son of God was being crucified, these same spiritual authorities thought they had won. They had been at work, scripture says, blinding the eyes of men, and so they thought bringing about the death of the opposing champion meant victory. But they had no idea that they were witnessing the death, that what they were witnessing in the death of the Son of God was actually the triumph of the wisdom of God, because it was that very act, the shedding of the blood of the Lamb of God, that God ransomed his people, not just from Israel and Judaism, but from every kindred, tribe, people, and nation. And when this Son of God rose from the grave and claimed victory even over death and hell, in the very next chapter, Ephesians 4, 8, Paul says, he led captivity itself captive. That is the wisdom of God. In all of its breadth, it is summed up in the crucifixion and resurrection and exaltation of our champion, Jesus Christ himself. Even the spiritual powers behind these rival philosophies, whose aim is to take you captive and make you subservient to their whims, even they have been rendered powerless against you by the multifaceted wisdom of God. The wisdom of God, fourth, is being displayed right now, today, by the unity of his multi-ethnic, multicultural, global church. There was no greater divide than the divide between Jew and Gentile. You were either a Jew or you were a Gentile. That's the divide. And there was, no, there was a wall that had been built up between those two groups of people. And for thousands of years, as a result, you were either an insider, a beneficiary of the covenant relationship with God, and a recipient of all the blessings and promises of God, or you were an outsider and had no share in those promises. You could not scale that wall. You could not break it down. It was fixed and impenetrable. And in the wisdom of God, he himself took on flesh, came as an insider, 
was rejected by his own people, was killed by them, on the out, pushed to the outside, and when he rose from the grave, he shattered the wall. And when that wall came down, all other walls that have divided humanity or currently have the potential to divide humanity fell with it. And Paul is not only talking about that wall, even though in this chapter he mentions the Jews and the Gentiles and that divide. In his other letters, he teases out the implications that it is all things that divide humanity. In Colossians 3, he says, here in this wisdom, there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. And in Galatians 3, he says, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Show me a philosophy that promises that. You can't. There hasn't been one. Modernism certainly didn't do it. Postmodernism has not and will not do it. The wisdom of God has done it. This far-reaching unity in the face of deep diversity is the proof, Paul says, of the wisdom of God. In fact, if you look at verse 10 again with me, he did all of these things, he revealed this wisdom throughout all of the ages so that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in heavenly places. This, the word that he uses there, the Greek word, the manifold wisdom, means multifaceted. But something interesting about this word is, it is the word that the Greek scholars used when they translated the Old Testament into Greek, when they talked about Joseph's multicolored coat, his manifold coat, his coat of many colors. And Paul is here in this chapter arguing for the diversity, the multi-ethnicity of the church as the proof case for the wisdom of God itself. Isn't that amazing? This multifaceted wisdom of God is displayed as people from every tribe, kindred, nation, language, multitude, people group on earth come together as one and subordinate their groups to the group, the family of God. So you don't leave your culture and your heritage and your group at the door of Christianity. You bring it in as subservient to the household of God. And there, this multifaceted God is put on display and his wisdom prevails. And he leads captivity captive. Amen. And lastly, and most importantly... The thing that this wisdom does that no other philosophy has been able to do is it loves the outsider. It loves the outsider. Have you ever been loved by a philosophy? <laughs> of course not. The American dream doesn't love you. Promise. Doesn't love you. Modernism doesn't love you. Postmodernism does not love you, especially if you disagree with it anywhere. Philosophies can't love. But this wisdom is love itself. Amen. This wisdom is not just an idea or a thought. This wisdom is a person. Paul says in 1 Corinthians, Jesus Christ has become our wisdom from God. Amen. He took on flesh. Wisdom, true wisdom, put on flesh. And so it's not just 
Philo Sophia, a love of wisdom. It's actually, he reversed it. It's Sophia Philo, a wisdom that loves you. And it doesn't love you because you agree with it. It loves you in spite of the fact that you disagreed with it and were rebellious to it. You rejected this wisdom, and I did, and all of its authority over your life. And while you were yet sinning, this wisdom came and died for you. This wisdom is worth embracing. It is worth the full capacity of your mind and your heart and your soul that you would love this God with all your heart and all your soul and all your might. And as you do that, if you really are going to give yourself to this wisdom, you can't help but love the outsider, your neighbor as yourself. And if you won't do that, you are not subscribing to this wisdom. You aren't. You are not a Christian if you are not radically transformed by this love and then seeing it flow out of your life into a love for your neighbor. So this morning, I just want to ask, what wisdom is vying for your soul right now? I can feel it. I can feel it in my own heart, the pull the pull of modernism in areas. Riches are fun. Health is good, right? I like being able to go on Amazon and click whatever I want and have it show up on my doorstep the next day. I like the promises of modernism. I believe in some of the things, and so does scripture, in some of the things that postmodernism has to say. I believe that we should pursue social justice with all of my heart, but that is not my savior. Getting my political power, my group into power is not my savior because my savior is in power already. And so I'm not shaken by politics and I'm not dividing and hating my brothers and sisters over something as trivial as politics. I have a greater wisdom that has captivated me and led me captive. And with that, I'll close because Paul introduces this chapter by introducing himself as a prisoner of Christ. Beware lest you become captive, led astray and captivated by a lesser wisdom. Be captivated by the infinite, eternal wisdom of God as displayed through the unity amidst diversity of his church in the world today. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the gift of your church. Thank you for what you're doing in this world. Thank you for your wisdom that doesn't get driven and tossed like a wave of the sea, but that is steady steadfast, immovable. Your wisdom was here thousands of years ago. It'll be here thousands of years from now. And one day we will all gather before your son, our anointed king and older brother. And with every language on the face of the earth, we will worship him as one voice. Father, thank you for your wisdom. I pray that you would help us be transformed by it, continue leading us captive into it. It is a good captivity. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.